I love the words of that song because that song is all about heart, and so is today. Today is all about heart. Last week, as we turned the page on James chapter 4, we were reminded that it is really about God's will, not our own. And as a disciple, that has to become a regular theme in our lives. It's about His way, not our own. And as James opens the first six verses of chapter 5, the final chapter in this book that we've been journeying through, he reminds us that there is nothing more revelatory of a person's heart and their mind like the way that they treat possessions and the way that they treat people, the way that they treat their stuff and the way that they treat the people that have been entrusted to them. It's really kind of indicative of our trust or our living the first and second greatest commandment. The first commandment is that we would love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if there's a portion of us that says, I love him with like 85%, but I spend about 15% focused more on just, you know, taking care of those that God has entrusted to me and, and focused on my own comforts, then we're not really loving God or pursuing Him with our all. And if we are not treating others, esteeming their needs above our own, because He said, I want you to love them the way that I would. If we're not sacrificing for people, then we're really not loving them the way that Jesus would. Thus, we're not living the second greatest commandment. And so today, I want us to recognize as we look at some rather harsh language, really intense language by James, that he's speaking to every one of us. And he's speaking on how we respond to things. He's, he's speaking to our own agendas. And if we really accept it, it is God's way over our own. And he wants to remind us. He wants to encourage us. Because he loves us. That there are some words used here that we might listen to and immediately excuse. We might recuse ourselves from the conversation. But I need you to know, I need us to know, today in America, in an industrialized world, he's speaking directly to us as much as he was speaking to a specific group in his day when he wrote this letter. So um, verse 1 says this of James 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, your moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. The first point I want to make, and we only have two, is this. There's a testimony that James is talking to, and it's a testimony of our own possessions. It's a testimony of your possessions. Jesus said this in Luke 6. He said, a good man brings out good things. Of a, good, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. But an evil man brings out evil things. For that which is stored in his heart. You're going to know the ending verse because this is the one we quote the most. The end of this verse says, For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But see, before he gets into what we say, he says there's an intention and a motive. What is stored in the heart really reveals what is in the heart. And that's evident not just by what we say, but what, what we do. Jesus reminds us that this verse tells us that our actions and our words are always speaking. They testify the motive of our heart. Jesus went on, Matthew 15, he quoted Isaiah 29, he said, These people profess me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me, declares the Lord. And then Jesus did something really interesting in Mark 2, and I'm, I'm saying all this about what Jesus did because it's really important. James is only affirming the things that Jesus said and did. 
In Mark 2, you have Jesus heal a lame man as four friends lower him through the roof in a house. Because he can't, he can't walk, and they know that Jesus is the only answer. As they lower him in, Jesus heals the man, says he removes his sin, and he's able to help this man to walk for the very first time. What's interesting, though, is this. Mark 2 reveals that Jesus doesn't need our actions or our words to know what is in our hearts and our minds. He sits there, and without saying much, he watches the Pharisees sitting over on the side, casting judgment over him in their mind's eye, in their heart. They didn't say anything. But in their mind, he reads that they have cast judgment on him and said, who can forgive sin but God alone? Is this guy claiming to be God? And he says to them, he turns, no one else knows what's going on. This is like a secret conversation of the mind, okay? No one else, they're astonished this, this lame man's come through the roof and Jesus is about to heal him. But Jesus goes, okay, wait, what's more important to you? That I forgive this man and remove his sin or that he get up out of here and walk? And he goes, so that you know God has given me all authority over sin on heaven and on earth. He goes, you take your mat and walk out of here. And the people were astonished. So I say that to say this, that it doesn't matter how we may feel we've convinced others. It doesn't matter how much we feel we have everyone else deceived. Maybe even deceiving ourselves in our mind's eye about how we treat our possessions, what we're truly after, what, we, what our affections are, what is our objective. No matter how we may believe or we've taught ourselves to believe, how we treat others, God truly knows in the heart. It doesn't matter what we say or do. He doesn't even need that. So today, we have to reflect. We have to allow ourselves to look at what God is looking at. We need to go inside, reflect, consider, and possibly even repent. Truth is, too often we excuse ourselves from the conversation of money and stuff, the term rich, because of the way that we define rich. There's no one in here that I know of, that walked in and goes, I'm so rich. Specifically in 2020, when many people are losing their jobs, it's, it's been prudent for us to put our minds on what we have and what we're losing, what we don't have. But here's, here's the thing. When you consider who he's talking to here, and you put that in terms of today, we are all in this conversation, whether biblically or by worldly standards today, every single person, seated here, would be quantified by Jesus as rich. Okay? So, it doesn't matter how often we want to excuse ourselves in the conversation. We're very much in it. So, this gives great opportunity for us to personally allow ourselves to let Jesus come in, teach our heart, make it soft, teach our minds, convict us, and then we simply respond to him. We can't confuse what he's saying here as rich with the gross excess that we have defined rich by in an industrialized world. Although, even in their day, they experienced it. Because he uses specific words here. He says, your wealth is rotted. This goes to show that he's not talking just about land and houses. What he's talking about is people who were so wealthy and so concerned about making sure they had a future and making sure they had enough acorns for a rainy day that they were amassing large quantities of food and putting them aside for themselves. But they and their family, by the time that they needed that food, 
by the, they had so much of it stored away. By the time they needed that food, the food was rotted and they couldn't even use it. It was of no use to anyone. So they could have just parted with some of it and fed people who actually needed it, but they didn't because they were concerned and responding to life and in fear. They amassed what they could, these large quantities of food that ultimately served not them or anyone else. He says, your, your clothing is moth-eaten. This is in reference to the rich. Now, the rich would often have these family heirlooms, these priceless, really lavish gowns passed down hand by hand because, I want to say this, you can't take it with you, okay? So those who had gone before them who were wealthy as well would pass down these garments that were to be broken out at lavish parties that happened momentarily for moments, maybe a week or two at a time, sometimes annually, sometimes biannually, where they could use those gowns. But in the day-to-day, you're talking about a time where people literally wore that which was on their backs. They may have had a change of clothes simply to put on while they were mending what they wore all the time or it was being cleaned. But it, there's, it would be completely inappropriate from the walk around with these gaudy gowns on in the marketplace just going to the grocery, okay? So those gowns were put aside and stored, and they're put away in, in these chests. And he's speaking to those who didn't have one, two, th- they had multiples of gowns that have been passed down, these priceless family heirlooms that people are celebrating because it was their heritage. But he's challenging it because he goes, when are you going to use this stuff? It's just moth food. By the time you actually get to use it, you pull it out and there's holes in it and it's of no use to anyone. You only only need one for for the parties you're actually going to attend. And he's not saying that you're going to hand these lavish gowns to the poor. That's not what he's saying either. The poor aren't going to the lavish parties. But he is saying, how many poor people will these things feed? Hello? If you only need one, why do you have six? How many people could be fed by your hand if you just sold five of these and held on to one? The actual number of what you need. But see, they loved what these gowns said about them. They loved the value it projected about their own lives. They loved the value it projected about their own heritage, their family. They loved the price and the value that accompanied said gown. So they held on to him, and he says, they're moth-eaten. They're going to be of no use to anyone while you continue to hoard them. He says, your precious metals, they've corroded. And this is, this is both literal and figurative. He's saying... You can't take any of this stuff with you. The precious metals that you quantify your life by, they were literally, they're going to return to their dust-like form. They're going to go back to the way that they first started. It'll crumble like dust. However, he says, because you cannot take it with you, the corrosion I'm actually speaking of is the revelatory nature of what it shows you were after while you were here on earth. The corrosion that says you were after earthly goods testifying against you and what you truly and who you truly lived for. You may claim Jesus, but this is exposing where your heart and mind actually are, who and what you are truly about, only repeating what Jesus had already taught the world. Matthew 6, Jesus said it like this. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where, listen, where your treasure is, what, church, your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And James is saying what Jesus has already established throughout his ministry. He goes, if you're really about the gospel and you're really about Jesus, Jesus sacrificed so that others could have, so that you and I could live. If you're really about Jesus, then why are you hoarding? You should be giving away. Why are you hoarding and amassing food that will benefit no one? Why are you hoarding gowns that you're never going to wear? Why are you seeking to hold on and stockpile these metals that are ultimately going to turn to dust? And, and in the end, they only reveal who you actually are about, what you're about. And Jesus taught James something that he continues here. He says... You've accumulated due to robbing others. It's not just that your heart has been exposed in this first. Like the testimony of your possession shows, shows how much you're after comfort. So it kind of shows your direct disobedience to the first and greatest commandment. But it also exposes the way you got there. That you're in direct disobedience to the second greatest commandment. That you've literally become rich on the expense of other believing families that you think aren't as good as you. Hello? James 4, uh, 5, verse 4 through 6 says, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Second point, it's not just the testimony of our possessions, it's the testimony of our people. Those God has entrusted to us, how many of us are treating them in a sacrificial way the way that the Lord would, loving them and putting their needs above our own? Verse 4, he says, Look, the wages you failed to pay your workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. What James is saying is you're in direct breach of the law itself. Deuteronomy 24 and Leviticus 19 require that not only would you not delay payment to the day worker, but that you would, it's, it's heinous to think that you would deny it altogether. You see, in that day, the day worker was a regular part of the rhythm of Jewish life. They didn't amass these large uh, workforces that were on salary. These people who were poor, they counted on a wage to eat that day. And so they'd go into the marketplace early, hoping that a wealthy landowner would come and select them for the day, that they would agree to a term, that they would be paid. And then at the end of said day, they would take that money, go home, feed their family, and start to prepare for the next day. These day workers were such a part and so vital to the economy of Jerusalem that they would go in day after day after day in hopes of being hired, but many of which would go days, weeks without being hired at all. And so they're in there only hoping that they receive the gift of being selected by a wealthy landowner. And then these rich who are in the church just like some of the poor day workers. It's like the rich 
leader comes and selects a poor person from his own church to work in his field. And then by the end of the day, they come to be paid. And the rich goes, I've, I've got nothing for you. Like just abused them, just took from them. They, they worked hard all day long, long, hard, laboring days to go home having their hopes completely dashed and not sure if their children will live to see tomorrow because they may not have been hired for an entire week. They're starving. And so James says, their blood is on your hands. It's innocent, but it's on you because of the way you treat others, that you've gotten rich on the backs of other people. James isn't highlighting the fact that these people were supposed to keep the law. Let let me be very clear. This is a letter to the church. This intense letter is not to someone written outside the church. It's written to those who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. These are people who were supposedly converted from Judaism to to be Christian, to follow Jesus, to be like him. And he says, not only are you not Christian, because no one who embraces the gospel would treat people like this. Not only are you not Christian, you're not even Jewish anymore. You're literally bold-facedly breaking the law that is your heritage. I thought you would at least leave this to go back to this. You don't even care about that. You're just worldly at this point and care about nothing but yourself. You're just worldly at this point, and you care nothing about people. The essence of the gospel is relationship. If you hear nothing from me, hear this. When you step into eternity, you're only taking relationship with you. Your entire salvation is based on a relationship to Jesus. And your entire life and ministry on the planet is your relationships to others based on that relationship. And so if he sacrificed for you and lifted your needs above his own. He was willing to die so that you could live. How do you justify treating people this way? That's not the way of Jesus. That's not even the way of Judaism. You've turned your back on everything but yourself. And church, I know that this is a specific people that he's talking to in a specific time. But can I ask you, church, How do we hoard? How do we, too, devalue the worth and the work of the poor amongst us? Jesus said, the poor will always be among you. As a testimony to the world, you get the opportunity, you get the gift to treat them the way that I would. Let me ask you, church, how do we treat the less fortunate among us? Do we hoard our food till it spoils when those who really need it could have it? Do we amass in our closets? Because, you know, when you go looking for a house, you got to look for a closet big enough to hold your stuff, right? Do we amass in our closets enough linen to cover us when we can only wear one a day anyways? When they could really use it? Are we amassing and stockpiling our gold that'll turn to dust when all they're asking for is a day's wage to feed their family? I mean, you go, (laughs) 
Justin, that's so simple. Yes, it is. And James is speaking directly to it. And you know what? Jesus was speaking directly to it. And the reason James is quantifying and repeating what he saw in Jesus is because he experienced all the stuff I mentioned before. Matthew 15, Luke 6, Mark 2, he experienced that firsthand. How many of you have experienced the grace and the love of Jesus firsthand? How many of you, God has always and will always, you trust, be on time? He's always provided everything and every time you needed. It may have been in the last hour, and it may have caused you to sweat, but he did it. Then, then, like, then why would we be counted amongst the rich? The rebuked here. Why would we allow ourselves that? James is exposing a wickedness that is simply worldly. And he says that the choice that he's making here is to testify against the rich so that he can fight for people to see the gospel of Jesus. How often are we, by what we say and what we do, fighting for people of the world who are in need and who are dying to see the gospel of Jesus versus having our possessions and the people in our lives, the way we treat them, testify against us? He said, you condemned and you've murdered the innocent. They weren't opposing you. Their blood is literally on your hands. He's saying they would starve to death because the church didn't hold up its end of the bargain. The church wasn't doing what Jesus left the church here to do before going to be with him forever. So innocent blood was on the hands of the church, James is saying. And the rich here are to blame. This is a really important verse and it distinguishes something. It doesn't say that money itself is the problem. The money is what identified the rich. That's what they counted on. They liked what it said about them. They liked the value, the worth that it exposed. But it's not the money or the means that are the problem. But rather the motive behind the way they used their money. That was the problem. It was evil acquisition. It exposes the heart of the worship and what the wicked or the rich in this passage truly worshiped. First Timothy 6 says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not, not money that's the problem. It's the love thereof, that you love that. And what God has called for you to do is to love him with your all. So any portion that you're giving to money, you are in direct disobedience to the first and greatest commandment. Living opposed to the life that God has for you and for me. It says, some people were eager for money, having wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Here's what I want to ask us today to consider. It's the pursuit of the comfort for man. It's the insurance that we seemingly think this stuff that's going away gets us. If we are a people who've been given eternal life because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that means that we will never stop. In fact, the scriptures say that to be absent from the body means to be what? Present with the Lord. It means you won't even taste death. So why would the church of Jesus have been left in a world that's dysfunctional and broken and in need of love? 
Anyone agree with that statement? Just a little bit of truth. Why would Jesus leave us here and be okay? With us amassing food and clothing and buildings and stuff. Placing our interest and our investment in that which is ending when we were created forever. That which is going away because you can't take it with you. The only thing you're taking with you is relationships. The only thing that gave you this opportunity was relationships. So the question, church, this morning as James 5 begins the closing statements to this entire book we've been walking through verse by verse. James is being very specific. If you're truly one who has embraced and lives the gospel and is focused on his kingdom, then you need to understand that your life should reflect Jesus. And Jesus' life was sacrificial, not hoarding. Jesus was about investing in eternity. Not that which is temporal. Church, what he's trying to say to us is this. That we are to trust more our eternal God than we are our earthly resources. All of this is ending. It's but a vapor, James 4 says. So this morning, whether it be your possessions or the people that God has entrusted to you, what would they say of you? What would their testimony be of you, of me? God has clearly entrusted us with both. How we treat either is indicative of what and who we truly worship, church. If they testified today about you, about me, what would they say? What would it reveal? Would they be testifying of a heart seeking God with his or her all? Or would they testify against you? Exposing that you only truly worship yourself. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask the band to come back. And we're going to move to a time of response. But in order to respond accurately to this word, we have to be able to reflect. We've got to be able to consider. And I want to tell you one of my favorite words in the scriptures is the word repent. Because it's so practical. It means literally to see your course of action is wrong as God reveals it and you turn and follow his direction for yourself. Change in course of action. Here's, here's the irony this morning. So we're about to pray. The irony is that the pursuit and struggle after comfort for man, which Jesus pronounced is paramount in Matthew 6, like it's the only thing that stands opposed to him. Like we worship ourselves, we worship him. The irony is that we struggle and we clamor and we fight to hold on to our little nest egg, to hold on to our little acorns that we would have enough in the end. When scripture revealed that God himself is the great comforter, that he's the only one that ultimately fulfills us or sustains us. And it doesn't end. Like he eternally fulfills us, not for today, but forever. Not just for right now here on earth, but for all of eternity. He's infinite and he's sovereign. How many of you, just no one else looking around, how many of you have recognized he's even kind in his provision to you? 
hands raised. He's been kind. Yet we tend to turn away trusting ourselves more than him. Manipulating. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the comforter. And the Apostle Paul wrote of the Lord that he's the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians. This morning, will you let him comfort you as you turn your attention wholly in your heart and mind back to him? Let's pursue him right now, both individually and together as we pray and sing. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your word that seeks to rebuke, encourage, correct, teach us. When we are walking in your way or straying from it, Father, I pray you find a church that not only loves you this morning, but is willing to be obedient to whatever you ask of us. So God, whether it be our possessions or the people you've entrusted to us, may our testimony only be that that worships you. In Jesus' name.